Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren. This is not a Kofafi break. This is not uh, deprogrammed. This is just an impromptu episode that um, I had some stuff on my mind today. I wanted to share it with all of you, so I decided uh, to just go live. Probably picked a bad time. I know at least um, one person is watching. I know Ninja Kitty's in chat. This harkens back to the day when I started Unsafe Space, when there was like Literally, I remember there being six subscribers and going live and hoping that one of them would be in chat and maybe having one person in chat. So um, that's fine. Those of you who missed this, it's my fault. I, I told you all at the last minute, and it's a horrible time for most of the world. Uh, but uh, this was the time I had to do it. So um, I had some things about the economic situation right now that I wanted to share with everyone. So I'm going to do that. So... Um, Actually, Ninja Kitty in chat saying there's video lag problems already. I'm not even doing anything, and there's video lag problems. Lovely. Uh, anyway, um, while I'm waiting, I'm going to give people a few minutes to come in, just in case there's a few people who want to come in. And um, while I'm waiting, I'm just going to read some stuff that some one of our viewers, Nicole of the Mountain People, shared. These are some of the things that went into, or that were being proposed to go into the coronavirus relief package by the Democrats. So uh, I don't think they actually got in, at least not all of them. Uh, $33 million for the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, because that's important. Uh, $100 million for NASA and $100 million for construction and environmental compliance. <clears throat> $278 million for the IRS. Oh, I think that was actually, I think that one was wrong. I think it was 600 and something for the IRS. Uh, I think it was more than that. Uh, $35 million for the JFK Performing Arts Center. That one actually did stay in. It turned out to be $25 million, though. Uh, $900 million, or $90 million for an HIV program. Uh, $7 million for one specific DC charter school, uh, Gallaudet University. Howard University, uh, $23 million. Howard's endowment uh, is $647 million. Uh, $300 million for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. $500 million for the Institute of Museum and Library Services. $1 million for the Sergeant at Arms of the Senate. And $300 million for Migration and Refugee Assistance. I think that stayed in as well. Um... I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, uh, rules about putting minorities on corporate boards. Um, I think there was some voting requirements in there as well. So anyway, there's more stuff, but those are some of the fun things that the Dems wanted to go in the latest coronavirus bill. So, all right. Oh, look at that. I switched back over to chat and people showed up. Hey, I'm kind of, I was posting or I was uh, postponing doing anything until a couple people showed up. So I know it's late. I know it's late where a lot of you people are. I'm sorry. This was the time I had to do it. As I said earlier, I had some uh, I had some thoughts about the financial situation that I wanted to share. Finance and economics aren't really Carrie's thing. And this is more just me sharing information and less of a discussion anyway. This was the time I had to do it, which it's, uh, you know, 8.30 Pacific time, which I know is very inconvenient for a lot of you. But <clears throat> this, was, this was the time I had. So 
I'm going to I'm going to start. Uh, I guess I'll start by saying I've you know there are people who push back and say you're not an economist. You shouldn't be talking about the economy. In fact, I think I even saw James Lindsay say that, which is sad because that's a genetic fallacy and uh, that's not how reason works. And I like James Lindsay a lot, but I think I even saw him tweet something like this. <clears throat> I am proud that I'm not a, I'm an economist, an economist, because I sound like Joe Biden when I every time I screw up words now, I feel like Joe Biden. I'm proud that I'm not an economist because, frankly, most economists get everything wrong all of the time. Uh, very few of them predicted the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis. And the few that did, uh, Peter Schiff comes to mind, uh, Noriel Rubini, I follow them, and I think they would mostly agree with everything I'm about to say. So uh, Peter Schiff would go farther probably than what I'm going to say in terms of his doom predictions. But no, I'm not an economist, but I have run several businesses in my life. Uh, I haven't been podcasting my entire life. I've had a career for several decades. I've been an entrepreneur. I've run businesses. I've run venture firms and been an investor. So uh, I'm not economically illiterate. Anyway, the overarching summary that I have, and I'm going to go into some details, but the overarching summary I have is we should prepare for a depression. Um, I don't think this is going to be a recession. Uh, Noriel Rubini thinks it's possible that it could be a recession, but there's a lot of ducks that need to line up uh, that need to be in a row for it to not devolve into a depression. I don't think those ducks are lined up. And um, and I think we're going to be in, in a depression. And I think that depression is going to last while we reconfigure our economy to a new normal. Now, fortunately, America is very resilient. We have a lot of natural resources. We have, I don't know if people know this, but we have the most accessible we have the largest amount of accessible farmland in the world. Um, our farmland is penetrated with very navigable waterways. We're very we have uh, a lot of resources that are just intrinsic to where we happen to live. And so I don't I don't think it's doom and gloom for us forever, but I do think we're going to be in a depression. Um, and navigable navigable waterways are important because it costs ten to thirty times as much to transport anything on, like, not through waterways. Waterways are still very, very uh, important, even though it's 2020, a cheap way to transport food and goods. So, you know, the U.S. is not, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to die altogether, but I think we are going to be in a depression. And I think that depression will last for, you know, some reasonable period of time. It's not gonna, like we're not going to be done by the end of the year. That's not a depression. If you look at how the markets collapsed, for example, um, they did in days what took years in uh, years or months in in the past and past depressions? They they you know you you look at curves in the or yeah you look at curves in the past and you see them go down steadily, um, and you have like this uh, you know maybe if it's a if it's a recession you might have it like do a V or maybe a U if it kind of stays down there and comes back up. The the curve I heard uh, Noriel Rubini describe it this way. The curve isn't, it's not a slope down. It's literally just a wall. We went in like three days. Uh, it's its unprecedented. It was a huge shock to our economy. Um, and this is not not—this uh, is not something we're going to recover from soon. So let's talk about why we're not going to recover from it soon and what's going on. First of all, let's just look at the obvious thing. Let's look at unemployment numbers, which came out today. Three weeks ago, we were at 
uh, an, a historical low for unemployment. We had 200,000 people applied for unemployment at the time. That's, that's a historically low number. Uh, <clears throat> as of today, the Labor Department released unemployment statistics. 3.3 million people filed for unemployment last week. 3.28, I think. That is an all-time high by far. The previous record for unemployment filings was in 1982 when 695,000 people filed. So we're like four and a half, five times, almost five times more uh, people filed for unemployment just last week. Now that's unemployment. <clears throat> that means these people don't have jobs and it's been only the first week here. So I don't expect that to be the end of unemployment filings. I think they will go up and not a little. I think they're gonna go up substantially. Now there are 200 million adults roughly in the US. So I don't know how they count working people, but I'm just gonna go off of number of adults in the US. It's 200 million adults in the US. So that's what, one and a half percent increase in a week? Uh, one and a half percent uh, uh, filing? That's That's crazy. It's a crazy amount of people. And I think if that number is going to increase substantially. So, um, so that's not good. So obviously if you don't have a job, you can't pay your bills. You can't buy food. You can't pay your mortgage or your rent. And this check from the government isn't gonna help. Um, first of all, it's not gonna come till May. Second of all, it's gonna cause other problems, which we'll talk about. Third of all, it's 1,200 bucks uh, per adult, which is nice, but uh, it doesn't substitute for uh, loss of a job. So what's gonna happen? So there's ripple effects here. So if people lose their ability to pay rent or mortgages, now I have heard banks have agreed, many, many major banks have agreed to delay mortgage payments, but they're not, they're not gone. You'll have to pay it later, so. Uh, what's going to happen is if people can't pay rent, so let's just look at an example. A lot of people have this attitude that like, screw the landlords, you know, landlords are parasites. Landlords, uh, obviously that's not something I agree with, but even if we just take out the moral picture here, landlords often mortgage, they have mortgages themselves. So, and landlords rely on rent. Now, if you've got a building and you've got, uh, let's say it's a small 10 unit building. If five, six, seven of those people, even, even two or three or four of those people can't pay rent, you may not have enough to pay your mortgage. Now, people think of landlords as money bags, but that doesn't mean that they have operating capital to continue for very long paying mortgage uh, when they don't have rental income coming in. So what happens? Well, Obviously, banks hold that mortgage. So a couple things happen when mortgages fail. First of all, the bank uh, the bank needs to devalue the mortgage. So if it goes into foreclosure, obviously the bank gets stuck with an asset that they've got to dump on. You're going to see real estate prices fall. And right now we're talking about residential real estate. You also, I think, see commercial real estate fall, which I'll talk about in a minute. But we're talking about residential real estate. You'll see prices fall in residential real estate because banks are going to get... If, if they have to foreclose, they're gonna get stuck with a bunch of houses and, and apartment buildings that they don't want, and uh, that's never good for the price of housing. 
But worse than that, banks are going to have to shrink their their balance sheets. So if you if you think about the financial crisis in 2000 and 2000, 2008, 2009 timeframe, what was one of the impetuses? Well, it was bad mortgages, bad loans. Banks, and that, that problem hasn't been solved. Regulation didn't solve things. It never does. It always makes them worse. So um, you've got banks holding mortgages that were previously worth something. They're going to have to write down, even if it's just on paper, they're going to have to write down the value of those mortgages. Now, that might not seem like a big thing. So what? The building was worth $10 million. Now it's worth seven. Who cares? Bank writes that down on their, their balance sheet. Why does that matter? It's just an entry in a book somewhere. Well, the reason it matters is banks can loan, thanks to fractional reserve lending, banks can loan. Uh, the amount banks are allowed to loan out is dependent on the amount of assets on their balance sheet. So that's an asset on their balance sheet. And they leverage that asset. I think, I don't know if this is exactly correct, but I think it's some, somewhere around 10 to 1 typically. So for every dollar they have on their balance sheet, they can lend 10, which is a separate issue we can talk about at some point if anyone's interested. But so banks are going to have to write down uh, their mortgages, and that is going to result in a credit crunch. So banks won't be able to make loans. Well, who takes loans from banks? Well, people running businesses uh, predominantly. Yeah, consumers do as well, but um, businesses, a lot of businesses need things like lines of credit because they have cash flow issues where they're going to get a payment, but it's not for two months, but they owe these people now and blah, blah, blah. And they got to, you know, pay for inventory. So, uh, small businesses often have lines of credit from banks. That's going to shrink. Uh, they also take loans. That's going to shrink. So you're going to see just, just from these people not being able to pay rents, you can see some dominoes, uh, falling over here. We can look at we can look at um, commercial real estate. Similarly, uh, let's let's just look at actually small businesses in general first. Uh, and then, by the way, Ninja Kitty in chat says the banks do not want our homes. That's true, which means that they will sell them at auction or very cheaply. Uh, they certainly don't want to write them down, but they are going to. They're going to write them down. You also have a lot of people. I've seen and this is anecdotal, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for these people, but it is going to affect the market. There are there are people who have multiple uh, buildings that rely on Airbnb or multiple uh, units, people renting units and then Airbnb them like they they Airbnb them out uh, in order to pay the the rent or the mortgage. That's going to obviously die. Uh, <coughs> uh, Tara mentions the oil prices. We can get into the oil prices later. I don't have them in my notes, but actually, I think oil prices will go up eventually, which is good. Um, sort of. <laughs> It's, it's good for those of us who hold oil. Um, you don't want them falling too low, though. So it's generally kind of okay for them to be uh, a decent level. The reason you don't want them falling too low is, is not anything economic. It's just uh, the U.S. becomes dependent on foreign oil if the price drops too low because the U.S., it costs a certain amount of money. The U.S. has, the oil extraction in the U.S. is more expensive than, like Saudi Arabia, basically they stick a straw in the ground and oil comes out. They don't, there's no work. Um, and they've already stuck the straw in the ground, so like it's very cheap. Uh, but the U.S., um, you know, we do a lot of fracking and uh, other kind of things that are more difficult. So um, the operating, the uh, the margins are, are thinner on our oil. Anyway, 
Small businesses. So small businesses obviously getting shut down. There's obvious examples like bars and gyms and restaurants and that kind of stuff. But even other small businesses, you know, you got a yarn shop. I know a lot of our our audience is is into, you know, yarn. You got a yarn shop. You got or you got a gun store or you have uh you know any kind of any kind of quote non-essential establishment. Well, you are losing a lot of revenue right now. And Having run businesses in the past, especially startups and small businesses, it is rare for small businesses to have a wad of operating capital on hand. They can't survive for several months without revenue. That's not a thing that most small businesses can do. They can't survive. And so what happens? Well, in the best case, those businesses contract, which means they probably cut back on employees. So some people are out of work. They they change their operations to make them um, leaner. That's the best case. Uh, the worst case, which I think will happen quite a lot, especially to restaurants and bars and that kind of thing, um, because I'm actually uh, the owner of a, a bar in San Francisco. One of the, one of the owners of a bar in San Francisco. I expect them to die. Like that's that's a, a loss. I'm just anticipating. Uh, and the reason for that is. Uh, they don't have, we don't have a lot of capital sitting around on the balance sheet. That's not something that a bar keeps. They don't keep a wad of cash so they can operate for a really long time without selling anything. So I think you're going to see a lot of those businesses close. And a couple things are going to happen. And, and by the way, there is no real proposal in this, uh, quote, fix relief package thing to fix that. Even if there was a proposal, it's just logistically impossible. There's no realistic way to, to do this. You can't have an entire bureaucracy of people deciding how to give business loans to every bar on, on you know street corners of every city. It's just, it's not going to work. So they're screwed. There's nothing, there's no way to save them at this point. Um, so that's going to have a huge impact. Not only back to unemployment, it's going to have another unemployment impact. It's also going to have an impact on real estate, obviously, because if the bar closes, landlords not getting their rent, uh, again, same effect that we talked about um, with residential real estate. Also, you're seeing the, the businesses that do survive, especially a lot of businesses that have a lot of intellectual workers, you're seeing them have to transition to remote work. Well, there's going to be a normalization of remote work. People are going to have to work like this for even if it's just a few weeks, which I think it will probably be longer. But even if it's just a few weeks, businesses are going to get used to um, they're going to figure out how to do work efficiently remotely. And when they do that, uh, I mean, any good CFO, <laughs> if we were operating that way and then, you know, things got back to normal and we could go back, if I were a CFO, I would immediately say, Hey, you know, uh, maybe we can cut back on rent. You know, this, this, this thing, this, uh, remote working, it worked out. All right. It worked out. All right. Here are the issues. Maybe we need some space for these things. Maybe people could come in once in a while. But you know what? Rent's expensive. Let's let's ditch let's ditch all this rent and make our operation more efficient. So I I think you'll see some of that because of the normalization of remote work. So again, that will have an impact on the commercial real estate market. Very similar to the impact we talked about uh, on the residential real estate market. Um, I mean, I'm I'm just gonna pause once in a while and look at chat. Tara says a restaurant in her neighborhood closed already. Yeah, not not uh, not surprising. Um, Ninja Kitty says it's amazing how fragile our economy actually is. Well, when you build an economy with a printing press and a bunch of pieces of paper, it's it's amazing how fragile that can be. 
So let's talk about large businesses just for a moment, <clears throat> like airlines. Airlines is my pet peeve here because uh, it's been, I've, I've seen this from the blue checkmark crowd on Twitter saying, oh, well, you got to save the airlines. We can't not have an airline industry. Well, first of all, let's just the, the economic pressures on large businesses are going to be identical to small businesses, even businesses that are cash rich. I was looking at Southwest's balance sheet the other day, Southwest Airlines. They've got uh, $2.5 billion in cash on hand last I checked. I think it was in the end, end of 2019. I don't, it's, it's unclear how long that lasts them when they're operating without the expenses of actually normally operating, but it might be up to a year if they stretch it, probably six, six months to a year. So they've got a little bit of runway, um, which full disclosure is why I bought some Southwest stock when they crashed. But I think most, most big companies don't have that much runway. Um, there's been a lot of stock buybacks that have been happening over the last few years, so they've been depleting their cash to own their own stock. They cannot, they can't continue operating for very long. So they're in the same boat. The difference is a lot of the large companies like Boeing and Delta are connected through cronyism because we don't have capitalism. We have a bunch of cronyism. So, you know, they they can get a meeting with Nancy Pelosi or whomever it is. They can get a meeting with senators. Um, and so uh, they are going to beg for handouts and assistance, which they did. And I think Boeing, I think both Boeing and Delta are getting something out of this uh, bill. We haven't even talked about the bill yet, but look, this, this whole too big to fail crap is the antithesis of capitalism. It's the opposite of capitalism. And too big to fail is the, it was a mantra of the bailout for banks in the 20, uh, 2008, 2009 crisis. Um, it's a lie. There is nothing too big to fail. In fact, if you start subsidizing large companies like that with government handouts, all you're doing is socialism for rich people. You are subsidizing. You're Whenever they have a big loss, you're not making them responsible for it. But when they get a profit, they get the profit. You don't get the profit. So it's like the worst, it's the worst of socialism. If you just owned the airline as a socialist country, which I'm not recommending, at least you get any profits and you get the losses. But no, we have a cronyist system in which the schmucks that are the taxpayers and our kids and grandkids, we suffer the losses. We have to bail them out when there's a loss. But the hedge fund managers and investment bankers who own them, who sit on the board, they, they get the profits when they are doing well. So, you know... You've basically got two options with large companies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about airlines specifically, but this applies to anything, especially anything with assets like, like, uh, like an airline. This idea that you can't let the airline collapse because we won't have an airline industry and we're America and we need airlines, you are literally retarded if that's the way you think the economy works. Um, the planes don't vanish if Delta goes out of business. If Delta goes out of business, all that happens is a few high, like high percentage stakeholders, people who own a lot of stock, get a little suicidal or upset. Uh, they take a loss, that's what happens. Maybe management gets fired. They go into chapter 11, someone buys them out of bankruptcy or they buy them at a fire sale because the company knows they're going into bankruptcy. 
The planes don't cease to exist. The people who know how to fly planes don't cease to exist. The airports don't cease to exist. The trucks that fuel the planes don't cease to exist. The fuel doesn't cease to exist. All of that still exists. All of it. It just gets transferred to new ownership. That's what happens. You're not bailing out the airline industry. You're bailing out people who own airline industry stock. And there is a huge difference between those people. Yes, we need a functioning airline industry. The best way to have one is to let Delta go bankrupt if they don't go through this and let someone else swoop, swoop in, buy the assets and operate them moving forward. That's what you do. That's what, that's what capitalism does. And if you don't let that happen, you end up with this moral hazard where the people that have the investment in the airline don't really care if there's a big crisis. They don't have to save for a rainy day because mommy and daddy government will bail them out and they have a limited downside. And there's, honestly, I, I you know, obviously I'm not a socialist. I'm not, I don't like the people on the left. You know, I don't like the attitude of the people on the left. I don't like their philosophy, but I totally relate to the anger that, that leftists feel when they look at these huge bailouts because it is unfair and it's not capitalism. So you can let them fold, which is the right thing to do. Let them die, let them die. Most people will retain their jobs. New owners will come in, might change some management. End of the day, you back up with a functioning airline. What we're going to do instead is bail them out, which means the investors get saved and profits get privatized and losses get socialized, which is the worst, most immoral thing you could possibly do in this situation. So another thing that hasn't been talked about much, I'm going to take a sip of water. Another thing that hasn't been talked about too much is the supply chain. And I think this is because probably a lot of people don't really think about where the <laughs> the junk on the shelves at Walmart comes from or where things come from generally. And I know a lot of people aren't really into the nuances of supply chains and maybe aren't very connected. Now, I happen to be connected. My wife happens to be very in, in, involved in international supply chain work. And um, here's something that's happened. There was a book years ago called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. Uh, talking about this a little bit, but you know, look, historically, we have moved in the last several decades, our, our supply chains have become very, very globalized. Um, almost nothing is made locally, almost nothing is made in one spot. Uh, raw materials shipped to this plant, shipped to that plant, shipped to that plant, and all those plants are in different countries. Um, Dell was one of the historically famous examples of this idea of a just-in-time supply chain. I think, it, I think Dell was, if I recall correctly. Um, and just-in-time supply chains um, are very efficient when things are operating well. So the idea was, in the past, if you needed a raw material for something, let's say you're making um, iPhones and you need uh, a bunch of silicon and uh, you know, lithium for the batteries, whatever. You, you would order that in bulk, and it would come in to your warehouse and you would have guys with forklifts moving it around or whatever. I don't know how silicon is <laughs> transferred, but probably guys with forklifts, right? So uh, you would have a big inventory. Now, the problem with that is that inventory is sitting there and represents money that could be used in cash flow operations. And so a bunch of smart uh, 
finance people looked at this and operations people looked at this and said, well, that inventory doesn't really need to be there. The reason we have it now is because we need to be able to make a certain number and when it gets low, we, we order a bunch. What if we could adjust that down so we only order just what we need and it arrives just on time? And that's great. It's That's actually efficient. If you can pull that off, it's 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 efficient when everything's flowing flowing well. Uh, and not only did we do that, but those just-in-time supply chains are are very international. Specifically, obviously, China is a big part of a lot of them. A lot of the mining of some of the weird stuff comes from China and Africa, actually. So a lot of the weird uh, minerals and and compounds that are in your electronics and that kind of thing. So. So we've got this fragile just-in-time supply chain, and it's mostly outside the U.S. It's great when things are going well, but of course, what happens when there's a disruption? Well, uh, if you have inventory in your factory, you can continue to produce for some period of time because you got a little buffer. You can't do that when um, when you've got a disruption in a just-in-time supply chain. You're done. You stop manufacturing. Uh, and that affects everything. Uh, I think I think I read something the other day, like Nintendo Switches aren't going to ship anymore. They can't. Not that that's a big deal, but uh, I guess it's a big deal to kids, teenagers, and the MGTOW crowd. But, you know, Nintendo, Nintendo can't ship them anymore. And this is going to happen to a lot of things. And we're starting to run into this. Coronavirus has disrupted these supply chains. And a lot of people think this is just a temporary... Um, this is just a temporary... Uh, disruption. It's going to come back to normal. Like, ah, you know, a couple months, we'll be back to normal. Everything will be back. No, everything will not be back. Um, and this is what I was getting at at the beginning. This depression is going to last until we reconfigure uh, our the way that we do international trade and international business and supply chains. We are going to reconfigure that. Not completely. Uh, some things will remain. But what's happening right now, a couple things. First of all, you got to understand China went through the coronavirus. A lot of things shut down in China. They, like factories went out of business. Things have gotten disrupted in China. They may largely recover, but countries, not just the U.S., all countries are looking at this and realizing, crap, we're very reliant on other countries for many things. Let's take ventilators and respirators, for example. What are we seeing happening in the U.S. now? We're seeing people like Elon Musk stand up and say, uh, we're going to start making ventilators at Tesla. Why? Because we can't get them elsewhere. Because the countries that make them need them, and they're not shipping them to us. I think India, India I, I was reading, I think India actually banned uh, the export of hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria drugs that have been at least anecdotally successful against the coronavirus. Now, which is not, by the way, the same as the fish tank cleaner, despite what CNN tells you. So, you know, India is banning the export of this drug. So if we don't make the drugs ourselves, maybe we can't have access to them. So every country is starting to realize their own fragility that is uh, endemic to having global supply chains like this. And they are retooling and starting to rethink how they get their raw materials, how they get finished products, and they're going into an, a mode of kind of more nationalistic, more like a balkanized, a more balkanized 
world where they need to be a little bit more self-reliant. Um, so this international economy is reconfiguring. I don't think this is going to go away. Um, someone in chat mentioned distilleries are making hand sanitizer. I've seen that. Um, I, there's a plant that we're working with actually that, uh, that my wife and I are working with that's, that started to make the, um, they were a fashion company making apparel and they're making now, um, full body, the full body protective gear, because there's not a lot of protective gear, uh, that you can get for, you've seen nurses, I think in New York wearing garbage bags cause they don't have, uh, they're called coveralls. They don't have medical grade coveralls. Yeah. People are retooling. Um, people are making what they need to make. Some of this, uh, some of this is, I'm not saying this is good or bad, actually. Some of this might be fine, but it is disruptive. Um, certainly those of us who are against globalism generally, which I am I am in that camp, this is an anti-globalist uh, shift. You are seeing countries decide, I mean, even in Europe, where it was all about open borders, right? Countries are like, ah, uh, we're closing our borders <laughs> because they don't, you know, want the coronavirus to spread. So countries are realizing that there's uh, some definite incentive to protect their own. So uh, Joe Tendra in chat says, a large component of China's long-term plans are to monopolize and completely control necessary products. I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. And I think this will disrupt their long-term plans. China is also quite fragile. I know China is a huge economic superpower. I think China has a lot going for it. It also has a lot against it. China is like a hollow tree, right? The center of China is very poor and, um, and very economically depressed. And uh, China is not as uh, robust as, as you might think. And so, you know, China may go through some, some tough times as well. Anyway... So this is what's happening. The, 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 I don't know exactly how the supply chain will reconfigure, but it will, but I know generally that there will be this more national focus, not just in the U S but everywhere. It doesn't mean we'll never, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to stop getting stuff from China or elsewhere. We aren't, but, um, what kind of stuff and how much is going to change for everyone. And that's going to have an impact on our economy. That's going to have some reshuffling of jobs and that reshuffling of jobs and perhaps like there may be some businesses that go uh, uh, out of business completely because margins change. Um, a lot of consumer projects have uh, products have razor thin margins. So, um, you know, it's going to have an impact. It's going to lead to some, that will be more temporary unemployment as things reconfigure, but it's going to lead to some unemployment as well. So that's what's happening on the supply chain generally. Uh, before I get into the care bill, I wasn't going to talk about oil, but someone mentioned oil. Uh, I, I think I mentioned this the other day. The Russians and Saudis tried to exploit some of this. They're dumping, the, especially the, the, they're dumping oil on the market to try and depress the price of oil. Um, fine, but uh, that's that can't last. And I think as you see some of this balkanization, you may actually see the price of oil rise uh, as a result. I don't think it's going to rise during the depression necessarily. At least not the beginning of it. I think it could rise. Later, um, I think I think we're gonna still see depressed oil prices for a little while. But I'm not an oil price expert, so and I don't feel totally comfortable with that. But that's you know I, I do think we could start seeing. I know um, uh, Norio Robini thinks that 
you know, we could end up seeing $150 barrels of oil. I think we're at like 25 or 30 right now. So he thinks it could skyrocket uh, eventually, but I'm not totally clear on his reasoning behind that. So I can't say that with complete confidence, uh, but I can tell you at least what, what he thought. All right, so let's talk about this care bill. <sighs> By the way, when people in chat are saying China should be held accountable, uh, shunned globally. Yeah, I mean... The, the one thing I want to say about China is, because um, I have seen a lot of, like, anti-Chinese, there has, look, I'm not one to call out, like, racism everywhere where there's not racism, like, uh, you know, I don't think saying Wuhan virus is racist, I don't think saying China virus is racist. There has been, though, race, I've seen firsthand in some prepper groups and stuff, some pretty vile anti-Chinese racism. I do want to, and the, Chi the Chinese people deserve this, just like every person in every nation deserves this. Its people are not its government. It's the Chinese Communist Party that should suffer. Um, and yes, the Chinese people are st stuck there and they may be collateral damage for shunning China. But I just direct your anger at the government. I wouldn't want to be held accountable for everything our government has done. I'm not part of our government. Um, and so most Chinese people, just like everywhere and everywhere else, they're just trying to make a living, feed their kids, um, you know, but they're, you know, they are in a totalitarian uh, hellhole, right, where um, things, when things are good, they don't notice the burden. And when things are bad, people disappear miraculously and mysteriously. And, uh, you know, you get... You can't get news out because everything gets censored. I mean, China's pretty pretty heavy-handed, and a lot of Chinese are who were complacent about that in the past are waking up because of the coronavirus. They're realizing how heavy-handed their government is, um, because you know, a crisis brings out. What did Kerry say the other day? You, you revert to your true self. I guess the same is true for communists. They re, they revert to communism and authoritarianism. Um, so, uh, you know, just just be careful to. Just separate the people of a region from their government because uh, you don't want to get blamed for everything our government does. Trust me. Okay, so let's look at this. <laughs> I love how they name stuff. They always name it like they. It's always named like the children are great, and if you don't like this, you're a jerk. Bill. Um, <laughs> this is called the care bill. Some an acronym. It's some acronym involving coronavirus, probably and relief. I don't know. The care bill. The care bill was passed. I, I don't know if Trump signed it yet, but it was it was uh, passed by the Senate. Two trillion dollars. Two trillion dollars. And and uh, the Congress has has indicated this is the start. Don't worry, this isn't the full relief package. This is just the emergency. This is just you know round one. This is just round one, $2 trillion. To put that in perspective, um, the, the largest uh, previous relief bill ever uh, implemented was during the financial crisis, and it was $831 billion. So, yay, larger. Um, we broke a record. Also, we broke a record today, by the way, in U.S., is, in case anyone didn't notice, we're now the world leader in coronavirus cases. Uh, anyway, so we just broke a record for $2 trillion relief package. <sighs> More of this will come, as, as I've said. The financial crisis in 2008, 
2008-2009 started with, like I said, $831 billion was one of the, I think was the biggest package. All told, though, I think it was close to $8 trillion or some ridiculous amount. So we're on, we are on a trajectory to just, I mean, if you can't find toilet paper, just find, find some U.S. dollars. That's where we're headed. I don't actually think we're headed to hyperinflation, but um, it's pretty bad. So let's take a look. NPR has a nice chart. I'm going to try something I haven't tried before. So if this doesn't work... I apologize, but I'm going to try to share a graphic and uh, my camera at the same time. So hold on here. Can you all see that? I hope you can see that. Um, I'm going to look in chat. Can you guys see this chart from NPR? Uh, this shows, this is basically an overview of what's what's in this bill. Uh, <clears throat> So individuals, 560 billion estimated, big corporations, 500 billion, education, 43.7, small businesses, 377. Like I said, small businesses, there is no plan to actually act, deploy this in any reasonable way. Uh, state and local governments, because of course, you know, got to pay governments, 339 billion, and public health, 153.5. So this is kind of the, the overview of this. Um, but uh, look, there's also a lot of pork in this. You've guys probably read there's $25 million for the Kennedy Center, uh, $75 million for the National Endowment for the Arts, um, $25 million to Congress for supporting their capability to telework. Now, uh, I don't know how many people are in Congress. I don't know. I'm going to look it up. How many congressmen are there in the U.S.? You're going to bear with me while I look this up. Let's see. United States Congress, how many members? 541, 541 Congress members. So let's divide 25 million divided by 541. So that's $46,000 if I did my math correctly. That's $46,000 uh, worth of aid for each Congress member to enable them to work from home. Wow, I, I could buy a lot of laptops for that. That's pretty good. Anyway, um, so yeah, so there's some pork in this, obviously. Uh, and obviously the government thinks they're essential. They're closing businesses, but government is essential. We gotta, gotta have the government. Well, let's talk about, um, let's just do some high level. I'm gonna stop sharing this uh, unless I need to, I'll come back to it. Um, Let's just talk about some high-level numbers. So, as I said before, there's about uh, 200 million adults in the U.S. Now, that means that a $2 trillion package is costing about $10,000 for each adult. That's the price tag on this, about ten dollars for each adult. Um, but don't worry. For the ten dollars you will get a check sometime in May for 1200 bucks if you make less than $75,000 a year. Uh, if you make um, more, it phases out as you make more money. I don't remember the actual phase out. Maybe it's actually on this uh, article. I think it's at the bottom of this article. We can look. Um, there it is. So if you make more than 99000 you get no payment. Um, and so it phases out to that. So, so there you go. That's your, um, 
That's what you get for your $10,000. You get that. And you get inflation. So that's what I want to talk about mostly. So the government believes that uh, the, the answer to any crisis. So actually, let me back up on this. If you did not, if you don't understand some, like, if terms like, I don't, I'm not trying to belittle, I don't want to, like, assume people don't understand this, but I think a lot of people don't. I know Carrie doesn't like to listen about, listen to economics. I don't know how many people are, are like that. If terms like, if you, like, don't understand inflation and don't really understand how the monetary system works at all, um, go watch the uh, video that I just put out with my daughter that where we read a basically like a little graphic novel that Erwin Schiff produced called How an Economy Grows and Why It Doesn't. It's simplistic. It uses fish instead of dollars to explain things. But um, it'll give you a general idea of the economic principles behind what's happening. So our government, when they get into a crisis, they have basically one solution. Um, print money. It doesn't always involve a printing press. More often it involves typing numbers into a computer, but they they print money. That's what they do. And printing money devalues the currency. So um, it doesn't devalue the currency immediately though. So the people at the top, the elites, remember we talked about cronyism, Boeing being a, you know in a position in Delta to get bailouts. Banks are, are especially in the cronyist position, central banks and, and large institutions. Um, they get access to um, things like quantitative easing and, 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 and expansion of credit, usually through some, it depends on the mechanism, who gets it how, but you know when the Treasury and the Fed do this kind of thing together, which is like their partner, their, their partners in crime, Access to those dollars first goes to the, the elites in the financial industry at the top. And those elites get to spend that money prior to the effects of inflation. So inflation takes time. Now, inflation is what happens when prices rise um, as a result of an increased um, monetary supply. So you imagine this. I'll, I'll just I'll try and say it really, really simply. Um, imagine we're at a party and uh, there's one pizza and it's got 10 slices in it. Okay, um, the value of each slice is uh, quite high. If I'm gonna trade my slice of, and we all get, there's 10 of us, we all get a slice of pizza or whatever, it doesn't matter. Value of a slice of pizza is quite high. If I'm gonna trade pizza for a beer or whatever, I might be able to trade half a slice because you know there's not that many slices and there's lots of beer or whatever it is. So pizza is very valuable. But if the Domino's guy shows up and dumps an unlimited supply of pizza on the house, suddenly, I can't trade my pizza for anything. I forgot a slice of pizza. It's like, yeah, everyone has slices of pizza. They're all over the place. That's how money works. Um, eh, everyone has money. Uh, when you print money, it just decreases the value of the money, which is why your prices go up. Um, and I'm just going to show a couple charts that I uh, I think are important. There's a bunch of ways that money is measured, um, like, like how much money we have in circulation. There's M0, which is like the physical money. There's M3. There, there's different things. I'm just going to show you um, M3, which is large portion of it, and I'm going to show you M0. So um, M0 is the uh, M0 is the actual physical money. So okay, so here is let's see if I can do this in max. So here's a chart 
Uh, hopefully you guys can see that. Here's a chart of the money supply. This is M0 from 1968 or before 1968 um, all the way up to recent. So you'll see prices have gone up. Gee, I wonder why. Look at the amount of money in circulation. Here's M3, which is similarly disturbing. Uh, way back by, you know, 1960 here. Uh, this looks like, what is that? 298 trillion. Is that what that is? Yeah, 298, no, billion. 298 billion to uh, 15 trillion. There you go. I was going to say 298 trillion seemed wrong. 298 billion to 15 trillion. So this is what's happened to our money supply. This is why, this is why things are so damn expensive. <laughs> That's why. So um, what's going to happen? This stimulus package isn't going to do much to solve any of the problems that we talked about earlier in the show. It's going to put $1,200 in the pockets of some people, but that's not going to be enough to, it's not going to get them their jobs back. It's not going to resurrect companies. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. But what the stimulus pack, and it's going to do things like save the investors of Delta and Boeing. But what it is going to do is make that chart I just showed you go higher and higher and higher. And that's going to drive prices higher. So we will see inflation. Our children will see inflation. This is just, and by the way, this is the beginning. So they're going to do more and more and more of this. So our currency will be uh, more and more devalued. Um, and so Ninja Kitty said, it looks a little like your graph on responsibility versus freedom. I love my graph on responsibility versus freedom. And someone asked me to put it on a t-shirt. And if anyone in chat says, yes, you should do it, I will do it. I'll put it on a t-shirt. But they're they're hoping that this will temporarily do something. Um, you know, it it will help some people temporarily a little bit, but prices will be going up. Um, you know, as soon as it's in circulation, prices will be up. Uh, and you know, it's certainly hurting your children and your grandchildren and you in the future. But one of the other things about this is it's it's a sneaky tax. So I'm not the kind of person who likes progressive taxes. I don't like taxes at all, but I don't think wealth should mean you pay a larger percentage. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. But um, a lot of people think regressive or progressive taxes make sense. But no one actually thinks regressive taxes make sense. No one thinks poor people should be more taxed than rich people because damn them, those poor people. But that's exactly, that's predominantly what the U.S. does. And no one talks about it. And the way they do it is through increasing the money supply. This is a tax on poor people. And let me explain how. When you are worth a billion dollars, let's, no, let's pull it down. You're worth 10 million. It's a reasonable amount. Let's see, lots of people are worth $10 million or more. You're worth $10 million. <clears throat> well, you know, you probably have a nice house. You may have a mortgage on the house. You might buy it out, right? But you probably have a mortgage. Let's say if you're worth $10 million, your house might be worth two if you have, if you're extravagant. Probably shouldn't be, but let's say it's worth two. <clears throat> so your mortgage on that's going to be, I don't know, 3K a month. I don't know, depending on how, well, depending on how much you mortgage, it might be higher, 5K. Um, <clears throat> so that, so you got that you got to pay for. So what's that 60K a year? Um, and you, you eat, but you can't, you know, 
you can't eat a lot more than a poor person. Like you probably have flame and yawn more and go out to eat more. Um, but there's kind of a cap on how much money you can spend. I guess you could gallivant around the world. But most of that 10 million bucks is invested in places. Uh, you know, you probably have a, a nice stock portfolio. You might do a little startup investing. Um, and so when the price of bread and milk at the store goes up, it's a very small percentage of your net worth. It's not a big deal for you because most of your money isn't spent on bread and milk at the store or even steak. Most of your money is spent, you know, investing in Berkshire Hathaway or whatever it is. You're not, you're not really spending, you're not spending a large percentage of your income. So it's easy for you to absorb inflation. Inflation's really hard for you to absorb. If you're poor, um, you're living paycheck to paycheck, um, you've you got an hourly job, you're not likely to get a raise because of inflation. If you do, it may not even keep up with inflation. You get hurt through inflation uh, severely. And so this is a regressive tax. And I don't know why the left doesn't jump on this. Well, I do, because the left is completely dishonest and they don't actually care about the poor. Um, but people should call them out on it, because if you cared about the poor, you would be absolutely against deficit spending and any sort of uh, increase in the money supply, which is how these things, this is just printing dollars. This is how this works. So anyway, um, that is, uh, Tara says, yes, put it on a t-shirt. Uh, and so, so does a few other people. So does uh, Tem what was it? what's this person? Temi Time. Temi Time Faces. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry if I, I get it wrong. Anyway, um, yeah, that's that's what happens. So, you know, that's th that's I think a summary of most of my thoughts here. I don't have. I'm not going to be dumb enough to make a pr prediction about exactly what this is going to look like and when it's end. But in summary, here for those of you who joined late. We are going to see more unemployment. I don't think this uh, this three million dollar on this three million unemployed last week is going to be the peak. I think we're going to see more uh, in the coming weeks. So employment's going to be bad, bad. We're going to have high, high unemployment. It's not going to be quick. It's going to last for a while. This isn't a recession. This will be a depression. This will be big. I think. Um, and we're going to see inflation over the next few years, thanks to the beginning of you know, stimulus, pa stimulus packages like this and, and other ones. And we're gonna see a reconfiguration of trade with more balkanization. So that's what I think is gonna happen. Um, I, uh, that's about as detailed as I wanna be, um, but I guess you can, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that in six months, everyone in chat is like, Carter, you're an idiot, the economy's back thriving. Uh, I don't think that's the case. So now's a good time actually to stock up on, I normally am not a big fan of consumer spending, so I don't think you should go you know, buy TVs and stuff like that, but it's a great time to buy stuff that's gonna last, like food that can last and things that you, um, you know you're gonna need in several years. It's a great time to do that uh, because the price of all those things is just gonna go up and we are gonna hit hard times. So I, I mentioned this briefly on the show the other day. Um, you know, we're not actually worried about starving, but even we, we have 100 pounds of flour. We've got um, like lots and lots of long-term food. And I'm a carnivore. I'm not even, I don't even eat carbs anymore. But, you know, if things get bad, 
we'll eat carbs. And so now's the time to, oh, buy chickens. Yes, we're building a chicken coop in the back. Um, it's a great time to become uh, self-sufficient for as long as possible. It's also a great time, if you're an entrepreneur, um, don't be discouraged by this. Some great businesses often come out of depressions. It's a great time to, like, when there's all this reconfiguration, you've got big players being knocked off of their, their pedestals, you've got opportunity opening up. It's a great time to get entrepreneurial and try something. So, um, you know, this could be the beginning of a new life for you if you've got an entrepreneurial spirit and you, you know, uh, you want to work really hard and you stumble upon or, 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 or think about a good way to make some money here and start a new business, this could be great. So, um, anyway, that's all. Thanks for watching, everyone. I know it was late. Uh, I know the East Coast people probably didn't show up, but the West Coasters are here. You're my peeps. Thank you. And uh, we will see you. We do have Kofefi tomorrow live. Carrie will be back for Kofefi tomorrow. And, um, yeah, you will see her see her then. All right, take care, and uh, I don't know, what should I say? Be safe, don't get coronavirus, wear your masks, do whatever, who knows. Bye guys.